Tonight, we have another uh, a treat for you guys. Please honor, celebrate, go crazy, however you want to do for our college pastor, Mr. Chris Jarrock. Wow, well, thanks, Cody. That's a spiritual sucker punch to make me go right after baptisms because I am soaking wet, and it's not from that. It's from grown man sloppy tears, okay? That was powerful, and as Cody said, my name is Chris Jarak. The honor of being the college pastor here to a rowdy group of world-changing college students. Um, and I'm really excited because what I feel like today is just like those baptisms, is going to be something that just hits us um, hard, but in such a good way. And so I'm really excited. If you've been with us since the new year, at the start of the new year, Cody introduced a series that we are in, and it's called We the Kingdom. And as followers of Jesus, we belong to his kingdom. So the way that we live and the way that we operate and the things that define us should look a little bit different from everywhere around us. And so he set up the series to talk about what specifically at Antioch Salt Lake City do we believe here are the ways that we live as kingdom followers of Jesus. And so he kicked the series off by talking about the Holy Spirit. We are not just a father and son church here. We are a father, son, and Holy Spirit church here. And we believe in him and that God inside of us, the Holy Spirit, we give him the ability to empower our lives and constantly meet with us and flow through us on a daily basis. He then followed that up with the sermon about identity and how a large part of knowing who you are is by knowing who God says you are. And he talked about how as followers of Jesus, we actually get to know God. His heart is for us to know him. And so we get to spend time with him each and every day and meet him and talk with him and get to know not only what's his identity, but who does he say we are. And then last week, Nolan followed it up with a phenomenal message on why worship is such an integral part of who we are as people and who we are as we the kingdom at Antioch Salt Lake City. He talked about what, what is worship? What's God's heart for worship? And he said something along the lines of, did you know that worship is the only thing that God doesn't and can't give himself that we get to give to him? And tonight, I get to follow that up by talking about our secret sauce. As a, we, the kingdom, and as an Antioch, part of the Antioch movement, the secret sauce. It's what actually got me involved in this movement. It was so attractive to me in this movement nine years ago when I was just a freshman. But before I talk about the secret sauce of our movement and our, of our church, I got to talk about the secret sauce of my life, and that's my wife, Jules. Yeah. Woo! Julie or Jules, look at her. She will never be up on stage. She hates the stage, but she's an angel, so I wanted you to see her um, because she is amazing. Uh, she is the peanut butter to my jelly. Specifically in our household, she is the Jif Natural crunchy peanut butter. We are a crunchy household, and judge me later. I don't care. I'll pray for you. But we are a crunchy household, and Julie is the Jif Natural Crunchy to my jelly because she is sweet and belongs with everything and makes everything better, but she's got a little bite to her. She's feisty. She's fiery, and she's amazing. And so I have to brag on her, first and foremost, whenever I get a chance. I'm thankful for you. Love you, boo. You're amazing. And so I'm excited tonight because we're talking about what I call our secret sauce. And while it is our secret sauce, that thing that's on, and you're just like, man, that makes that better. That makes sense, right? It's also, if we're honest spiritually, 
a little bit of Jif Natural Crunchy Peanut Butter. Because it should be natural, but oftentimes it's not. And some of us in here tonight may have to chew a little bit on what we go through. Because what we're talking about tonight is honor. And I've heard someone just this past week tell me that if you preach out of your weakness, you will never run out of content. And so I have a lot of content for each of y'all tonight. Because this is something, especially before I started following Jesus, I did not live my life trying to honor people. I was trying to demand and get honor from everybody. And then I started following Jesus, and my life was radically changed. But I had to work really, really hard to change my mindset and to learn what it means to honor people. And I've gotten really good at it. I believe that's why Cody asked me in part to speak on this. But just because I've gotten good at it doesn't mean I'm perfect. Just ask my wife. Because I accidentally dishonor her way more than I care to admit or mean to. I remember we just moved here a little almost four years ago at this point when we just moved here with uh, a group of us to start Antioch Salt Lake City and start this dream. We were so excited to explore the city and people kept telling us, oh, you have to go on this one hike. So we all climbed up and climbed up. We all jumped into an SUV, packed it out, and a bunch of us went to go hike the living room right up behind the U and watch sunset. And it was beautiful. It was breathtaking. The ride home, not as much. Because we're riding home. It's a short ride to my old house. And we pull up in the driveway. And one of my good friends says out loud to everyone in the car, to his wife, he says, babe, you are just the sweetest in the whole wide world. Aw. Julie immediately, and playfully, but immediately was like, Chris, aren't I the sweetest? Some of you are laughing because you know where this is going, and you know it's going nowhere good. (laughs) Without thinking, and oh man, key word here is thinking. Without thinking, I was like, nah, babe, you're not the sweetest. (gasps) (laughs) Boo, right? That is horrible. This is not a relationship series, but just let me tell you that. I'll give you this free piece of advice. Don't you ever, ever Never, ever, ever, ever tell someone that you are trying to spend a large portion of your life with that they are not sweet. (laughs) I had accidentally, not even meaning to, I just dishonored her in front of all of our best friends. And she's a woman of grace, so she gave me grace in that moment. And I explained later, that's not what I meant at all. What I meant is, nah, babe, sweet is not good enough to describe you. You spicy. (laughs) You're spicy. I'm from the south, and I love salsa. You are picante. Caliente, you're like a salsa that is beautiful, that is just coming together with all these distinctive notes, swirled into perfection and goodness, and you're fiery. That's not what I said. (laughs) You see, what happened was, is, what happened is I was being an idiot, and I had accidentally dishonored someone, and I thought really hard about, there's so many stories I could have gone to. I could have gone to when I was a freshman back at Baylor where I went to college. And I was a freshman. I could have talked about how I struggled and wrestled with God. What does it mean to honor one of my life group leaders when I thought I could do a much better job than him? And then next year when I became a life group leader, I wrestled and struggled with mic stands. Just kidding. I struggled with, oh, they're so frustrating. How do I honor someone that will not submit or respect my authority? And then later when I graduated and entered the corporate world, I remember How do I honor with my time and my actions and my heart and my words a company that I do value, but my heart's not in it? It would much rather be here with college students. 
the University of Utah and Westminster and Slick meeting and showing them Jesus? How do I honor something that my heart's not in? And I know that each and every one of you here can pretty quickly think of a time that you've struggled to honor or have even dishonored someone around you or someone important in your life. And I think that is because we have a hard time actually defining what honor is. Seriously, think for a few seconds. I want you to think inside your head. What is honor? It's pretty natural that I think a lot of us would say something about respect, right? Honor means to respect or to show respect to someone. And that's not a bad definition. I just don't think that's a kingdom definition because respect is based off of actions and attitudes, right? I respect you because I don't respect you because I wasn't pointing to anyone specifically. Uh, I don't respect you, right? Because of the things you said, the way you live your life, the things you do, etc. So respect is conditional. It's got conditions to it. And I don't think that's what honor is. Because while respect is all about being earned, respect is earned, right? You earned my respect. A father may say that to his future son-in-law. I respect you. You earned my respect. Because it's earned. Respect is earned, but honor is given freely and unconditionally. And so I think in order to talk about honor, we need a PBS-like spiritual special to broaden what does honor actually mean? In terms of as a follower of Jesus, what does it mean? What is honor and what isn't honor? And if we're going to be a we the kingdom kind of people, then we need to look at, I don't know a better way to do it than to look at the two greatest kings in the Bible. And so the first we're going to start with David. But i got to get a little backstory first because some of you in here are familiar with David. If I said the phrase David and blank, y'all would say David and? Goliath. Goliath, almost overwhelmingly. If I gave you a little more time, some of you may say David and Bathsheba. Right? Because we often tend to remember people based off their greatest successes or their greatest failures. But I'm actually not going to talk about either of those. I'm going to talk about something that happened right in between in his life that a lot of people just kind of glance over. But I have to set the scene first so we fully understand what is going on and what God's doing in the midst of this. So let's go on a journey to ancient Israel. God's chosen people, the Israelites at this time, are looking around and saying, hmm, everybody else got a king. It's a man. We want one of those. And so they said to God, hey, God, I know that you have been perfect to us. You have provided for us. You have never let us down. You have never failed like the worship songs we sing. Hey, but we want to look like them. And I just think that it's worth noting that before we even get to the passages we want to talk about, this whole thing started from dishonoring God. Honor, first and foremost, often starts with God. And we can be a people that claim, hey, God, you are first. You are Lord over my life. But we can't really be people that say he's first in our lives if he's the last one we go to or the last one we bring into decisions and circumstances in our life, right? But God being merciful, he said, all right, I'll grant you a king. And he picks a man named Saul. And Saul to the Israelites was everything they wanted. He was tall, dark, and handsome. This is basically the bachelor. He got a rose. <laughs> but the problem was, his, on the outside was great, but on his inside, his character was deeply flawed. And specifically, he was horribly, horribly insecure. And this insecurity constantly caused him to try to force God into action, to force God to show up on his behalf. And it even led to him doing multiple things that were specifically forbidden by Old Testament law. So he broke a lot of laws doing it. So God said, hey, my spirit and my anointing as you as king 
It's gone. And he told his prophet of the day, which would be Samuel, his mouthpiece of the time, he, he told Samuel, hey, I need you to go into Jesse's house, this man named Jesse, and tell one of his sons, Jesse had seven sons come to this house. He's like, hey, it's going to be a huge party. You're going to anoint the next king. So seven sons show up. And God tells Samuel, nope, 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 nope. Because we had looked at the outside of a heart, or we had looked at the outside of a man first, but now it's time for us to look at their heart. So all seven sons weren't, weren't chosen, but Jesse had an eighth. Jesse had an eighth son, David, his youngest, and he didn't even think to invite David to the party. Even if one of his brothers would have been chosen, David was left as an afterthought of an afterthought, dishonored and left forgotten in the field. So David comes in, and Samuel anoints him as the next king, and you know what he does? He goes straight to the palace. That's not what he does. That's what I would do, though. I would straight up walk into the palace like the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air style and be like, aha! Hey, you see that? That's coming down. Hey, we're going we're gonna to turn this into a water slide, and uh, that's my room. I call dibs, right? Like, you start owning the place. He was anointed king. Did he walk into the palace? No. He went back to the field where he had spent his whole life encountering God and his whole life serving his friends and family family and those around him. So a little while later, while he's in the field, he brings, his, brings a sack lunch to his brothers because they're in war and they're hungry. And there he hears a man named Goliath from the enemy side, who is a big man, a scary man, issue a challenge to any of the Israelites, including his brother and including Saul. And all of them, they, sh- they shrink back. But David takes a, takes a step forward. And even though he's a 15-year-old kid whose armor won't even fit him with one of a slingshot, he takes down a giant. And that kind of sets everything in motion to where he then gets invited by Saul into his palace to kind of be his right hand. And he becomes a skilled musician in the palace. And then he becomes an even more skilled warrior. And his fame grows. But Saul struggles with something, remember? Insecurity. So as David's fame grows, Saul's insecurity grows. And Saul starts to resent and despise. And he utterly hates David. Even the sight of him just drives him mad. So he tries to kill David multiple times, sending David running for his life. And for years, David's running for his life from Saul trying to kill him. And this is where we finally pick up. You can put the verses up. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, behold, David is in the wilderness of the Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfold by the way where there was a cave And Saul went in to relieve himself. This is weird. This is in the Bible, right? Let's just take a pause and laugh at that. That's weird. David is running for his life, hiding in caves, and Saul has 3,000 of the world's best warriors chasing after him. And first, he goes into the cave to relieve himself. This isn't a metaphor, guys. This isn't a metaphor of he's unloading the weight of his soul. No, he's unloading something else. He's going to the bathroom. Right? And I don't know about you, but I have never felt more vulnerable in my life than when I am in a public restroom and the stall door will not lock. My palms start getting sweaty. I'm like, oh, oh. And I start praying anything I can think of. Oh, good gracious God, you're always there for me. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, the stall door will be closed. <laughs> and no one will come in. Right? I know some of you have struggled with that, right? So what is this saying about Saul? What is this trying to teach us? It's telling us that Saul was vulnerable. 
and that his guard was down in this moment. So if you think this is weird, let's keep going because it keeps getting weirder. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave, and the men of David said to him, Here is the day of the Lord, which or here's the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily gave Saul's robe a haircut. Takes a little, cuts a little piece off of David's robe. What? This is a weird story. Saul is going to relieve himself right? And he just so happens, I was a religion major at Baylor, and I'll just tell you this, there was more than one cave in that area. There wasn't like a cave that said, hey, this is the porta potty cave. Pay 25 cents, we'll give you a key, and you can access the stalls. No. So out of all the caves he could have been, he somehow goes into this one and ignores the basic of any wilderness person, which is explore the cave you're about to try to go into. Doesn't do that. Ignore, it misses that there's 300 men sitting in there, and now he's alone, left in the dark, vulnerable. What would you be thinking if you were David? You can read the Psalms. Literally, he had been praying for years, God, deliver me from the hands of my enemies. They pursue me like hungry lions. Will you deliver me? Someone seeks to take my life, but God, I trust you. He's been praying stuff like this for years, and it's about this time. Some of them are about this time. And this man leaves 3,000 of his men outside, is in a cave, exposed, dark, vulnerable. No one would ever know what's about to go down. That's insane. To me, that would be like a godsend, no? And this doesn't even specifically pertain just to honor, but I felt like God said that sin is never a godsend. Never a godsend. No matter how much the circumstances may seem like it, the chance to sin, even if you feel justified, or even if no one would ever know, it's never a godsend. And David knew that he shouldn't have taken or stuck his hand out against Saul. And we know that because it says he arose and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. But you struggle with, it says, but the Lord told you, it should do to him as it shall seem good to you. What would seem good to you to do in that moment if someone had just pursued your life trying to kill you multiple times? What would seem good to you? I know what would seem good to me. I actually need a volunteer real quick. I need a muscular man to raise their hand, preferably not someone that's too tall because I already got referred to as the not tall Chris today. Um, so I need someone to, I can have to be able to look into their eyes. So do I have any volunteers? Raise your hands, please, real quick. Come on, guys. I'm not going to hurt you too much. Court. We'll take court. He just got volunteered by his friends, good friends. Court, get up here. I need you. Everyone give a round of applause to Court. I need you to stand a few feet back from me. All right, we got it. You ready for this? You got to look into my eyes. We got to have a moment here. Good. Because I think this story is what we actually do a lot with honor. If we're honest, most of us don't struggle with this part. When they're face-to-face, we don't struggle with, I'm not going to hit you. Wow. <laughs> No, we don't struggle with saying like, hey, Court, you are such a man of God. And even though you're a freshman, I'm proud of the way that you hunger and are making changes in your life to run after Jesus. You're amazing, and I love being your friend. Right? That's pretty natural to us. Chris, you did such a good job preaching, hopefully. Um, you can tell me later. Did you see our worship leaders? They are some of the most gifted people on the planet. Life group leaders, I know my face never shows it. 
But I'm so thankful for the ways you spend time and effort creating a place to foster the presence of God. Thankful for that. We don't struggle with this part that much. But what about when he turns around? What about when he turns around? As it seems good to you, this is often what seems good to me, right? Go down. (laughs) You just got taken down. All right, everyone give a round of applause for Corey, right? It's easy for us to honor someone to their face, but what about when their back's turned? Ooh, how often do we take shots at them? How often do we try to take a chunk out of them when their back is turned to us or they're not in the room? Right? But honor doesn't take shots. Honor never takes shots. And I was going for a run earlier this week preparing for this sermon, and there was this like lightning bolt of a thought that popped into my head and that it literally stopped me dead run. I just stopped because I felt like God said this phrase. How you talk about someone when they're not in the room is how you actually feel about them. Wow. I don't know about you, but that convicts me. How you talk about someone when they're not in the room is how you actually feel about them. So you can sit there and to their face say all day long, man, I am such a fan of you. I love you. I'm so thankful for you. But if the moment their back is turned or they're not present, you try to take a chunk out of them or take a shot. That actually shows how your heart feels about them. Some of you are thinking, I don't do that. I don't ever do that. Okay, let's get real real quick. What about your roommates? Yeah, some people already laughed. What about, your, what about when you're talking to one roommate about that roommate? Man, that person never cleans up their dishes. They are such a slob. Their alarm clock is the annoying alarm, and it never is turned off. I hate living with them. I can't stand them. They are so annoying. Right? Oh, we're not done yet. What about spouses? Woo. Husbands, how do you talk about your wife when she's not around to your, your friends, to your boys? Oh, I got the old ball and chain back home. Man, she is such a nag. She wants me to go home early. I'm trying to watch the end of the game, but all she wants me to do is pick up my laundry and wash my dishes and do this and do this. Why will she not leave me alone? She's a nag. Woo. A wife's. You're not spared from this either. Don't worry. What about, to your, what about your husbands when they're not in the room? Man, I wish he would show as much interest in me as he does in that bowl of Doritos or that game, right? He never gets off of the couch. Why doesn't he aspire to do more, provide more? Why doesn't he pursue me more? Oh. Do this to our spouses a lot. Let's keep going. Parents, what about your kids? That's a lazy one. I don't think this one actually can get into college. They're not the smart one. We would never say this to their face, hopefully. But when they're not around or when we're venting, right, they're so lazy. They can't concentrate on anything. I swear they must have ADHD. Kids. We're all kids in this room. What about to our parents? Entire church. What about to the older generation? The gray-haired wonders. Man, did you see how they tried to FaceTime me the other day? It was like right up to their nose. 
They have no idea who Alexa is. They don't know who Siri is. They're confused by Google Maps. They think I'm giving them directions in the car. They are so lost. What are they doing? They're embarrassing me. Why are you here? Right? But honor never takes shots. Never takes shots, even if circumstances seem right. And we can tell that David realized he messed up if we keep reading. It says, and afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. This is crazy. He didn't even physically hurt Saul. He just cut off a part of his robe. But culturally, what you wore signified what you did and what value to you. So David's ro- or Saul's robe would have represented that he was royalty and he was the king. So for David to cut off a corner of it, even a corner of it, was a message saying, hey, I'm coming for your kingdom. And it's attacking the thing that Saul loved and valued and represented. And it says, David's heart struck him. And there's some of us in this room that if we're honest, even when the, from the moment I brought up the word honor, your heart's been struck. You're picturing those times that, oh, I knew I shouldn't have done that. I knew I haven't, shouldn't have said that. And you're grieving a little bit. So what does David do? says, he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, to Saul, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So the first thing he does is he repents in, the first, in front of the first people he can find. It happens to be his boys. He repents to them and says, hey, this is not who I am. This is not how I want to live, and this is not how I want to get the kingdom. So he repents. And for those that have that oh, feeling in your heart, let me just encourage you that repentance is the fastest way to freedom. So he repents to his, to his men and says, So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. This is crazy because a few chapters ago, the Bible goes to pains to describe that, hey, his 300 men, they were rough. I'm talking like multiple teardrops as a minimum requirement. They were rough. They were burly men that were feared throughout the land. So for David... You have to think about this. David was running for his life, but so were his men. Their lives were made miserable because of Saul. They could have easily just outvoted David and taken Saul out. But how much honor must they have had for David because he was quick to repent? So David persuades, by the way he loves and honors people, persuades 300 men not to attack Saul. And then it says, and Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. This is crazy. Because to me, this is not how I want this to go. If I'm being honest, this is not how I want this Bible story to play out. You know what I want? I want justice. I want vengeance. And this is not, Saul just gets up and leaves? He had him in his sights, dead to right. He was in a cave, unguarded, alone, and everything. This, it would have looked like circumstances said, hey, go for the kill. Take him out. He had him in his sights, but what does David do? Instead, he chose to see with God's sight. He chose to see someone how God saw them. And as I was spending time with God earlier this week, I was just praying and crying out, God, what is your heart for honor? Why is this such a big deal to you? Give me your heart, not just good words. And I felt like he instantly said, honor is seeing someone as I see them, regardless of how you see them. And I thought regardless was a pretty important word there. Because David would have been justified, right? He had every right. Saul had tried to kill him. 
So he could have been rightfully, he was the next king. Saul was a roadblock to what his dreams were and what his promises of God were. He could have taken him out. But instead, he, was, he said, no, I'm going to honor him because honor is seeing how you see him, God, regardless of my circumstances, regardless of his actions towards me, or regardless of my position. It's how you see him. So how does, how does God see him? Well, David tells us in the next part. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage to Saul. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks you harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hands in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father. See the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut off just the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hurt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hands shall not be against you. Look at the language he uses here. He calls him my Lord, my King. He even says Father to Saul. What is he doing here? He's not, this isn't false humility. He's not groveling and trying to make himself seem insignificant to him. This isn't false humility. Instead, he's reminding Saul of who he is, not just rebuking him for what he's done. He's saying, hey, Saul, remember, yes, you may have done all these things, but that's not important. What's important is that you are my Lord. You're my king still, and I will serve you, and I will honor you, and I still see you as a father despite what you have done. What he's really doing here is he's taking the crown that was rightfully his. He's taking the crown and, and putting it on the head of someone else rather than trying to get it put on his own head. And honor is taking the crown, taking the crown to what God says they are and says, hey, instead of me trying to get mine, I'm going to try to give yours. And I'm going to take that and I'm going to put it on your head and I'm going to honor and value. David exemplified what honor meant so well, that honor means seeing how God sees people and giving them the crown that they will one day get in heaven, but just giving it to them as an early birthday present now. And not taking shots, not trying to be justified, not trying to be right. But I think there's a king who even showed us more what honor is, and it's the king of all kings. His name is Jesus. And some of you are like, of course Jesus is great at honor. He doesn't suck at anything. He's God, right? If he was living today, he would only eat kale salads, never have a cheat day. He would never um, use plastic straws because those are the worst. And he would always say my pleasure even if no one said thank you, even if it was Sunday, right? That's how we view God. It's a funny way to put it, but it's true, right? We view God as like, of course he's God, so this must not have been hard for him. But he, as much as he was fully God, he was also fully man. And just to let you know, this is the story we're about to read is coming up just hours before he's arrested and then later crucified. One of the most horrible ways to die. Did you know that Jesus wasn't looking forward to dying? He says later in the Bible, God, if there's any other way for you to take this cup from me, please do. It wasn't going to be easy. And I know it wasn't going to be easy for him to see his, one of his closest, one of his best friends, a man that he had spent three years sleeping next to, hanging out with, and constantly pouring into, betray him because he didn't understand who Jesus actually was. But no one said honor was easy. In fact, honor is actually hard. 
And I want you to hear that. Honor is hard a lot of times to do. It's hard to honor those, especially when they're not trying to honor you. But if we are going to be a weed the kingdom mindset people, then we have to take what Jesus did and look just like him in our lives. So what did Jesus do? In Luke 22, it says, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. So what does he do at first? At first, he's setting up what communion is all about. And why we value it, he's he's saying, hey, you may not fully understand, but I just want you to remember that when you see my body broken in just a little bit, remember that I I was broken so that you could be made whole. And that my blood was shed so that I could cover any amount of your shame or guilt or any of your actions. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember me. And he says it right before the next part. Because at this point, the the disciples, they're often silly, and they don't understand much. But they finally start to understand that something bad is about to happen to Jesus. And they want to know, who is it? I imagine Peter is about ready to punch someone in the nose. Who is it? God, tell me. I'm going to go stop them. Right? And he said, Jesus says, hey, hey, it's not what you think. It's not someone out there. It's not the, the emperor. It's not a ruler. It's not an enemy. It's a friend. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Some of you are like, where are you going with this? How is this honor? Let's go to the next verse. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. The ending tells us everything we need to know. If I was Peter, I would have been running around saying, hey, are you going to be the one? Are you going to be the one? Are you going to be the one? If I was Jesus, you know what I would have done? I would have, without hesitation, I would have been like, it's Judas! Like, hey, get him, stop him. He's up to no good. He's not, he's pretending to be one of us, right? I would have thrown Judas under the bus in a heartbeat. But God didn't tell them who specifically was. He didn't throw Judas under the bus. And if God wasn't willing to dishonor someone, even if it led to his own death, then the least we could do is not dishonor people when we disagree with them when we don't see eye to eye with them, or when they don't have our best interest. Hey, you came from this part. I don't, I don't like you. You look this way. You talk this way. You think this way. You voted for that political party, so I don't like you. I'm going to dishonor you, right? Hey, I don't agree with your, your religious stances. I don't agree. I don't like the way that you throw what I believe in through the mud. But if we're going to honor like Jesus, if we're going to honor like a man after God's own heart, David, then we can't put conditions to it. If we start putting conditions to it, then we dishonor God and what he died for. Honor doesn't have conditions. If it does, then we start to dishonor God and what he paid a heavy price to die for. And so I want to encourage you that honor is such a valuable part of the kingdom because even one of Jesus' last actions, he refused to not honor someone. It's in his DNA and it's in ours. So Imagine what it would look like if we, the 400 of us that are in our first and our second services, what if we just went out into the city and started honoring everybody? What would that look like? What if it started here, now? What would it start with if the moment anyone got on stage or left stage, whether they're a communicator, whether they're a preacher, whether they're a worship leader, whether they're giving announcements at the beginning of service? What if we just went wild for them. And I'm talking like standing up in our chairs and yelling for them like we truly believe 
and value the time that they're giving us? What would it look like if next week we confused the greeters outside because we ran up to them and we're like, hey, thank you so much for the way you lay your life down to make me feel known, seen, and valued. A large part of why I feel comfortable here is because you're willing to stand in the snow. You are so amazing and I appreciate you. They'd probably be like, what? You look great today. They wouldn't even know how to act. What if we honored people? What if you went and honored your teachers tomorrow without expecting a better grade in return? What if you went and honored your kids without expecting them to obey? What if you went and honored your parents and not so they would give you permission or give you better Christmas presents? What if you went and honored whatever the checkout person is called who takes forever to register my wife and I to punch in the codes for our produce, right? What if you honored them? What if you honored the customer service representative whose whole sole job is to keep you on the phone for 45 minutes only to frustrate you? What if you honored them? What if you didn't put conditions? What if you chose to see how God saw people? So I have one practical step for you, one challenge for you guys. Are you ready? One person said it. Are you ready? Because I'm giving it to you either way, okay? So let's go. I want you to look to your neighbor, and I want you to say, hey. Do it one more time with a little more mm. Hey. I'm not a big fan of acronyms, but I was just feeling it, okay? Because I think this is important. It's not hey, H-E-Y. It's H-A-E. It's hey. And I can spell, okay? I can, I promise you. But it stands for something. It stands for honor anyone and everybody. And I want you to think, so this week, whether it's five seconds after this service or five days later, I want you to think, hey, then every time you say hey this week, every time you say hey to someone, let that be an alarm that goes off in your head and says, how would Jesus want me to honor them? Jesus, how are you seeing them? How can I place honor on them? And some of you are thinking, I don't know how to do How can I ask Jesus a question like that? Because I actually don't know if he's even a part of my life. Remember at the very beginning that I talked about how honor has to start first and foremost with God? So for those of you that say, hey, maybe I don't follow Jesus, that's okay. But for those of you that say, I don't follow Jesus, but I want to. The Bible says, today is the day of salvation. And guess what? There's not an entrance requirement to that. You don't have to pay a price or do anything. He already did that for you. All you have to do is let him take the throne that's naturally his. And so I want everyone to bow their heads real quick. And I want you, if that's you, if you're in that place in your life, I want you to pray after me. And it, please listen to me. It has nothing, nothing to do with the words I say. Everything to do with your heart behind it. So let's pray. Jesus, thank you that I, I can't do it on my own, but you can. And that I don't have to because you will. So Jesus, I give my life to you in this moment and say, will you be first in my life? Will you take the throne? Will you speak to me? Will you be with me? Will you lead me in this moment? Thank you, Jesus. And everybody said, amen.